0: Coming up on this week's Redcast. I don't think anything summed up on any Redcast more the JWG ethos, which is we got to get compliance to be better, faster, cheaper with lower risk. And, and I think that this being a greenfield area where we can finally get out and explore,
1: whereas countries you know that don't have you know as, as significant concerns when it comes to monetary policy. Um, reserve currency, uh, monetary stability, I think they're going to be more aggressive here and I think the price for them uh, potentially uh, w- w- would be very beneficial uh, uh, for their economy. Gradually, that cost-benefit analysis, as Patrick is saying, people will get more comfortable, uh, people will realize what this is, people will sort of uh, uh develop the right architecture and think about architecture the right way. And you'll start to see uh you know this become more viable even in more developed um I think markets. And standards to
2: me is is kind of the key for everything um, because it's a real recognition of collaboration across different um jurisdictions, uh different countries, uh different kind of payment systems. But it's you know that that's kind of the the, the roots of where Swift started was to was to have a messaging service based on standards for this interoperability so that payments could flow across borders.
3: We're talking about, you know, this is, is this critical infrastructure? Um, if you do this right, it's the internet.
2: The prices improve transactions. That, that's really what it comes down to, right? So I think it's a perfectly natural progression as the economy goes digital and payments go digital, that the currencies that are used in those payments go digital as well. So I think this is a There's lots of challenges and lots of reasons, you know, risk to be addressed and a lot of things to to get worked out, but this creates a great opportunity for us. You know, whether you're looking at consumer use cases or you're looking at cross-border payments, it's a great opportunity for the industry and maybe, you know, for some of us, you know, a a once-in-a-career type of opportunity.
1: Welcome to Redcast. 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 Redcast where
0: we shine a light on banking digitization. Hello everybody, welcome back. This is P.J. Marino, CEO of JBG. I am really pleased today to be recording this episode of RegCast. at the end of June. Uh, We've had a deluge of regulatory documents about central bank digital currencies, and there's many, many angles to them, but we're all about digitalization, what it actually takes to get it done. And I finally saw some exciting documents about how that's going to work. So I don't think anyone really knows the future of CBDC, and we're certainly not policy folks here today telling you exactly all the ins and outs of all the different debates, but it's certainly something that's under the central bankers microscopes, and and they're exploring ways they can use these new forms of money to incentivize commerce, reinforce the resilience of the system, and figure out how to make global finance work better. So there's lots of new emerging tech angles to that, lots of exciting things that could happen and payment solutions and having the foundations for a new system that, that actually pulls all this together. Um, however, a workable CBDC infrastructure is not going to come out of nowhere. And I think one of the themes I pick up as I read these reports is that without international collaboration, we're going to have a hard time piecing the, the different bits, bits of the system back together again. So the, the, what we're focused on is how close are we to that reality, and what's it going to take to make it happen. So who, be, who better than to bring in bring in Tom Shack from Swift. Tom, do you want to quickly explain your role?
2: Hi, BJ. Thanks for uh, the invite today. I'm I'm Tom Shack. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at Swift. I've been in the role for approximately 18 months, and joined at, at, at as you said, a really kind of dynamic and exciting time with the launch of our new strategy and innovation being a key enabler for the execution of that strategy. So happy to uh, talk about these topics today.
0: Thank you. And, and uh, Bill, why don't you let people know what you've been up to and, and uh, uh, what we can expect from you today?
1: Yes, hi, uh, Bill Benwell. I'm a regulatory lawyer. I focus on financial regulation and compliance issues um, across Europe and the US. Uh, i former regulator in-house counsel across infrastructure and large financial institutions uh, so I'm hoping to kind of give a little bit of perspective on, uh, you know, some of the regulatory and potential patrol issues involved here.
3: And Patrick. Thanks, BJ. Um, it's good to be here with, uh, with Tom and Bill and, um, I'm the, uh, chief strategy officer for Securancy. I'm a, uh, Bill, I'm a recovering lawyer. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good right now. So, uh, but we, um, <laughs> Securancy is really a, uh, uh, a, a financial services infrastructure, markets infrastructure company, really blockchain-based. So we're not our own, we're not, didn't build out our own proprietary blockchain, but we leverage uh, blo- all blockchains and, and legacy systems in a very interoperable way. Um, so we're just, uh, just uh, closed our series B round recently, and uh, we're in, uh, in expansion and growth mode.
0: Well, fantastic. What, what, what a better way, to, could it be a better way to start this kind of discussion? Because I think this is this is new ground. This is new territory uh, for standards. And, but there, obviously, there's a huge standards land grab going on right now, whether we whether we receive it or not. Um, there there there's a lot of underlying infrastructure that we have that we could potentially use to adopt to it. Uh, Tom, can, can you give us a feeling for like what is it actually going to take to transact the digital euro with the digital dollar and the E one and the Bitcoin? You now, how, how does that work today? And, and, and you know, is there a way that you can see that working for CBDC?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, as you said, uh, PG, I, I don't think anybody has the answers yet. And we see, you know, uh, lots of activity within the central banks. We see lots of activity um, just in just in general. I mean, this is a, a, a as I said earlier, a really fascinating time. Um, you know, we have to remember that a, a CBDC is really a new form of currency for for the for the country. Um, and, and with that comes a tremendous amount of um, decisions and, and policy decisions. And, and I think really to start with it is, is for the central bank to be clear about the why. Um, and so before we start jumping into, into solutions and standards and how things are going to work, we first and foremost need to understand what is the driver and what are the policy objectives for a for country to want to issue a, a digital version or a new form of their currency to start with. And then once you understand that and what what segment it might be pointed at and what those objectives are, we can start to look at we can start to look at, at some of the possible ways in which you might be able to um, provide solutions for that. You know, we just recently did uh, dis- uh, publish a discussion paper around CBDCs, and it wasn't it wasn't really um, based on what SWIFT does or how things work today, although we you know we've been doing that for for decades and have lots of knowledge and experience in that area, but really tried to just say, look, if you step back, look at the characteristics of what's required in the infrastructure um, for a robust payment solution, right? Including a new form of money, which is a CBDC. And, 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 you know, the the, the list of things we found were not surprising, you know, strong digital identity with security and, and privacy a reliable, scalable network interoperability, you know, between uh, disparate uh, domestic payment systems uh, and, and different types of payment providers. And then as you say, standards. And, and, and standards to me is, is kind of the key for everything um, because it's a real recognition of collaboration across different um, jurisdictions, uh, different countries, uh, different kind of payment systems. But it's, you know, that, that's kind of the, the, the roots of where Swift started was to, was to have a messaging service based on standards for this interoperability so that payments could flow across border. So I I think the anchors are really around identity, security, privacy, and standards. And I think everybody knows, and especially the the people who follow the regulatory um, community very closely, that our move and the industry's move to ISO 2022 is well underway. We have very good early adopters. And with that, you get richer data, um, you you, you get uh, a better ability to service your customers. And, and you do that in a much more kind of efficient way.
0: Yeah, and it's great how you left right to the data, which is obviously at the, the heart of you know, any of the standardization. But there, there's also a big infrastructure ask here for standards as well, right? And, and I want to go to Bill next because I think this, the control of this infrastructure is, is a really fundamental question from a central bank's point of view. Now, how close are we aligning the to, to aligning the way from a legal perspective that you can trust the infrastructure across the different jurisdictions. Uh,
1: thank you uh, for that. Um, I think to the, the piggyback off what Tom said, I, I think it's, it's exactly right. It's a big ask. Um, you know, there's it's two kind of ways you can approach this. You could sort of have a complete public sector-led infrastructure, which is completely owned by a central bank from everything from uh the ledger the core ledger uh you know however they're going to sort of uh reconcile uh payments to point of sale to engagement with retail customers you can completely run the entire system through a central bank and that's probably not feasible uh so uh uh, you're probably looking at a system that's going to have some private sector uh involvement um as we do today with cash um you know Uh, private banks keep reserve accounts at the central banks and they facilitate the way we make payments uh, uh, using those reserve accounts. So you're probably gonna have a public-private kind of hybrid model um, uh, when it comes to CBDCs. Um, As Tom was saying, we don't really know, but that's sort of my guess. So uh, when you're talking about these type of models, what you really have is government setting eligibility criteria uh, for infrastructure to participate. Um, in in these market systems. And that's similar to uh, the Federal Reserve open market operations, reverse repo operations, and Europe primary dealer operations. The government says, uh, if you want to participate um, in these markets, these are the eligibility criteria you have have to meet. So you're talking about uh, CBDC, and if it's truly functional and truly system agnostic and truly open, Um, you could be potentially opening up a variety of market participants to these sort of strict eligibility requirements who are not used to it. One example is a supermarket. Um, uh, A supermarket, um, you know, normally has a banking or credit partner to help them manage payments and to help them deal interface with customers. Well, now all of a sudden, the supermarket, if it wants to access its own wallet and access its own cash and facilitate its own interaction with customers, has now all these sort of resiliency privacy issues it needs to be uh sort of concerned about. Um and that's also a challenge for regulators. You know, to make a CBDC truly open uh functional, you need a system that the largest, most sophisticated to the smallest, least sophisticated uh market participants find value in. And these things are time conflicting aims. Um, so I mean if you think about cash, the only real control when it comes to cash is security. Um, if you have it, the one thing you're worried about is not losing it. Well the CBDC is no different except that what's involved in not losing it's a lot more complicated than cash and involves me relying on a lot more people to keep my cash safe. Um, so I think in order to make this work, you're still gonna need banking partners. You're still gonna need market linchpins. Um, you're still gonna need this sort of big infrastructure to help people keep their money safe. I don't think you um, were looking at a system that's truly sort of uh, Uh, agnostic when it comes to infrastructure and agnostic uh, when it comes to participants um, um, like caches. You really are going to need a robust control environment, people, big participants who can meet eligibility requirements to participate and to facilitate CBDCs and to engage um, with customers and meet those strict privacy concerns, um, strict resiliency concerns, um, interoperability concerns that Tom was alluding to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that was some great points there, Bill. I guess the thing I take away from that, that I like most is that, you know, the, the g- going from a, a paper note to digital means you need all that digital infrastructure around it, and you need to make sure that that you're fit for purpose and being able to manage that. And it makes me makes me think of Patrick's business because he's probably learned some lessons in deploying uh, DLT uh, or, or uh, the blockchain. What what, what comes to, me, to your mind when you think about this challenge ahead for CBDCs, Patrick?
3: Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot has been said here, um, you know, by both Tom and Bill about interoperability. So, I mean, I think that that's obviously a starting point. And I, I do also appreciate the uh, the focus on privacy, um, and, and I guess the way that we think about it, because, um, and I hate to put it this way, because it just sometimes you're you're, you're living with technology for so long um, that um, it, you know it just seems sort of uh, you know obvious, right? I, I think that the technology issues are are not quite as, as thorny. Um, if you start with the right infrastructure, I think that, uh, you know, there's been a lot that's been done. And I'm not saying that the people who are working on it aren't bright and aren't thinking about some very important issues. They certainly are. Um, but I think that sometimes, um, you know, those things can be exaggerated. I actually think the technology is here and, and, and uh, you know, we certainly bring a lot to the table, um, you know, with the principles that we've applied to digital securities. When you think about policy enforcement, that sort of thing, it's the same principles that you would apply in this case. I think the bigger issues, of course, are, are around policy, um, you know, that, um, you, you know, it's a, it's, it's a neat idea to think about, um, but uh, you know, people throw the word CBDC or the, the you know, uh, acronym CBDC around um, as if it means one thing. And of course, we know that it doesn't mean one thing. It means many different things. Um, and the definition that you choose is, in my opinion, the, uh, the most important thing. Um, if you start off with the right definition and then the right policy, um, it's not too hard to move, the, you, know, in, you know, technologically in the direction that you really want to go. Uh, I'm more concerned about getting that policy right. Um, you know, I, I obviously begin with the premise that, you know, a direct account based CBDC is, um, I'll, I'll use a soft expression, crazy. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, there's to address a lot of the issues that Bill's talking about. Those are things that the private sector is particularly adept at solving. And so, you know, so I think getting the policy right is sort of the starting point for this, and then the technology will, will, you know, will certainly follow. So that's that's kind of the way that we think about it from, you know, macro perspective. You know, drilling down into, into the technology. You know, and again, you know, Tom obviously knows, you know, a thing or two about this. You know, given what he does. But you know, we we have focused, you know, very heavily on, you know, interoperability, but. Not just interoperability, but, you know, in terms of the business logic, which I think you know, there's a lot of pretty good work that's been done there. But most importantly, interoperability when it comes to compliance, because um, you know, any any CBDC is going to have to move um, quite, you know, qu- across you know quite a number of different environments and be able to um, you know retain some you know some central um, um, you know policies that or uh, are, are enforce as it moves um, in an automated way, you know, some core policy. So we we think about those things and. And architecturally, how how we can solve for that. That said, I'll I'll close on this. Um, we we're also concerned about you know how how, how far that goes. Um, and so um, when people talk about CBDCs, they're usually talking about programmable money. And when they're talking about programmable money, um, they're they're really introducing a lot of uh, sort of sp- really specters, in my opinion, um, that have implications for privacy. They have implications for um, you know who actually does control monetary policy you know at a, you know, at a very significant uh, or, or, you know on a day-to-day basis really if you can think, if you can think about it that way. So, um, and of course um, the ability to manipulate um, currency to you know, enforce social policy. You know, all of these things are, are, um, are, are, are quite significant um, and quite frightening in my mind. So um, again, back to policy, getting that right um, will guide the technology in the right direction.
2: Hey, PJ, I I think we should also separate out kind of policies that are new or monetary policies um, Mm -hmm. that would come along with with launching a digital currency or a new form of money versus the policies and standards that are kind of very well understood from something like CPIM, right, and and BIS, right? So so the policies that we need for uh, payments and market infrastructure, you know, those principles are written down. That's baked into market infrastructure. Structures and networks around the world. So, so we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't kind of go down the path where um, because we have a new form of money uh, from a central bank that somehow the policies and standards and, and even the expectations for things like scalability um, on the networks that we have today need to be kind of rechecked and revisited. I, I think a lot of really good work and a lot of clarity has come out of, of the industry bodies and, and the BIS in the last decade, you know this better than anybody because of the the reg intelligence that you do. Um, So I think we need to really make that differentiation between monetary policies or or objectives um, for launching the digital currency from the payments infrastructure that's used to to actually to carry and support that. I think that's a more than a subtle distinction.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, a lot lot of it breaks down towards uh, domestic versus international aims because and if you think about, you know, domestically, a lot of countries are improving their internal payment systems. Uh, the UK is upgrading its RTGS, uh, renewing its uh, RTGS settlement uh, platform. Um, you have a variety of of, of of countries looking at sort of proven settlement systems internally. Um, uh, but if you think about from a from a policy perspective, you think about a CBDC in terms of financial inclusion and all these things. Um, it's really no different than just improving sort of the speed of payments, um, improving people's access to bank accounts. I mean, that's sort of the theme that a lot of countries are already undertaking anyway. Um, but if you really want to think about the you know what some people the, the sort of buzzwords people throw around and so sort of the big aims of CBDC, you're really talking about international interoperability and. Um, sort of the reserve currencies getting involved, me being able to to change my CBDC for your CBDC um, to facilitate international trade. And as Tom was saying, these principles already exist at international level. Um, We we already have um, CPMI. We we already have uh, global infrastructure to oversee um, uh, 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 financial infrastructure at a global level. So uh, outside of the uh, domestic... Uh, policy perspective. I think we already do have international uh, regulatory environment to, to to set these standards. Um, when we start to reach the discussion where CBDC starts to become more than just about financial inclusion and domestic monetary policy, and begins to be, get more into the conversation about international interoperability.
3: Yeah, that's it, it, a that's a great point, Bill and, and and Tom. Your your point's well taken too. I guess the way that if you, if you think about it, just. Um, what's a lot of the impetus, particularly in the United States, where you hear people they say, well, gosh, you know, we really need to do this quickly because look at China, right? They're so far ahead of us when it comes to this. Frankly, I'm more concerned about China's blockchain services network than I am about digital yuan. But the, 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 the point here is, uh, you know, when you look at it, you say, well, yeah, let's look at what China is doing. Um, that's actually not a model that I would like the, the United States, for example, to follow. Um, you know the, the 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 policies that underlie you know their you know introduction of a digital yuan and the way in which they're doing it um, are not, in my opinion, uh, policies to be emulated. Um, you know, uh, particularly when you get into things like privacy and how you enforce social policy and and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, through you know through the financial networks. Um, so so that's what I mean when I'm talking about that. Right? If the impetus is well, let's just be just like them. Um, I'm I'm kind of saying take a step back. But technologically, and I will also add, you know, on the technology front there, um, because it reflects it as well that we also advocate for a more open um, and interoperable system than the one that uh, you know, we think is gonna be you know, implemented there or is being implemented there. So uh, you know, just to um, add a little bit of color to my previous comments there.
0: But what are these new risks that you're worried about, Patrick? And when, when you talk about programmable money and, and something scaring you, I mean, is it you referring just to the identity and, and being, someone having more vis- visibility to what you're doing with it? Or is, is there more to it?
3: Well, look, I, I think about things like this. Um, and again, I, I, I divide it into two, into two categories, right? Sort of, you know, um, what I would call sort of the, um, you know the 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 micro dial on on social policy and the micro dial on, on monetary policy they're sort of two sides of the same coin when you think about the programmability of of uh, you know of, of of money so to speak um, and uh, you, you know again you, you see it in social, in kind of social credit scoring in China and how um, that's tied into uh, the financial networks that's scary um, you know and and you, we might put another gloss on it we might call it ESG it's the same thing at the end of the day. Um, you know, you're just kind of putting, um, you, you know, a, a heck of a lot of power um, in the hands of, um, you know, really a few folks. Uh, and even in a democracy, you know, you, you, how you set those dials. It's not you, you can say, oh, yeah, we had a big discussion in Congress. But let's face it, it's good. The d- dials are going to be set by bureaucrats. Um, so so, you, you know, on the other side is is monetary policy and, and you know, and, and Uh, I, you know, there's an expression that I always loved when I I was working and I was doing some stuff in Azerbaijan, they use an expression, monkeys with bombs, right? You know, always be afraid of monkeys with bombs. Well, That's what I think about, you know, lawmakers with, you know, micro dials on monetary policy. Sorry, that that bothers me, that worries me, right? So those are the two things I think about.
1: I,
2: I, 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 sorry, Bill, I never think about policymakers like that.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I agree with the points you made, Patrick. I do think that people underestimate how much of this is already baked to the system today. You know, uh, you know GDPR is, uh, you know, such a revolutionary uh, concept in Europe. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much of your data when you build a supermarket. I mean, I used a supermarket example earlier, you know, that banks and supermarkets yeah. and people you shop they actually have on you and, and can build a profile in terms of your spending um, I mean, it's not a social credit score, but there's a lot of information that sort of is already out there regarding your spending. I think the sort of the, the concern about CBDC, and this is where GDPR becomes sort of relevant, is uh, your inability to opt out of it um, like you can with cash, you know. And so the, the extent that, you know, it makes uh, sort of cash less, um, you know, sort of viable uh, uh, or less useful, um, you know, you can take cash and go uh, uh, buy and, you know, buy something without anyone knowing what you're buying. Um, but having said that, um, uh, the flip side of that is, you know, look, there's always going to be uh, a market for cash, <laughs> you know, for that very reason. Um, and, and there's always, you, you can't send a payment to North Korea, whether it's a CBBC or whether it's a SWIFT or wh- whatever it is. You're not going to be able to do that uh, no matter what. Um, and there's always gonna be a market for cash payments and there's also uh, some type of government involvement, um, would it be from a monetary uh, perspective or uh, AML, financial prime perspective, any kind of electronic payment infrastructure.
0: So, so let's focus a bit then on some of those barriers that, that, that are there today and, and recognize some of those barriers are there because we want them to be there as, as Bill just very eloquently pointed out um but what are some of the ones that we should be working on to enable cbdc uh, cross-border payments to work effectively and, and tom you, you just wrote this paper what, what you know what are your top three things that you you sort of in, in, in come off the top of your head about what needs to happen there
2: yeah so i mean i, I mean we, we, at swift we're not advocating for a cbdc uh to, to be launched we're not pushing for a pace we're actually positioning ourselves you know, as the explorations move forward and as decisions are made to launch a digital currency to help our community and our members um, adopt that and to have the interoperability. So to to, to me, and and again, in the discussion paper we said is is kind of the core characteristics that you need for that. You know, to me, first and foremost is interoperability. Um, I I don't think anybody thinks that that um, there's gonna be a new network or a new form of money and then you know, we're kind of just going to close down on Friday and open up on Monday and flip the switch and, you know, hello new world. Um, that, that's not going to happen. And and financial institutions and banks have made large investments, have uh, lots of experience and lots of maturity with um, very high volume scalable systems today, uh, and that's just not going to change overnight. And so there's got to be a clear path for backwards compatibility and interoperability. Um, I think that this, the second thing is, is and, and Bill was touching on this before, it's really around security and and, and privacy, and and um, you know we're we're in a very kind of special trusted position where we're, we're the stewards of the data for our members and for financial institutions. This is not Swift data. This is our customers' data, uh, and they've they've entrusted us, you know, to to um, uh, to process that. They've entrusted us to control that. They trust the governance that we have in place to protect their privacy and, and and the security and it's a it's a huge responsibility and we take that very very seriously of course um so th- so the second thing on the list to me has to be around security and and privacy and then the third one i think is is just the you know the the operational aspect of it um with reliability and scalability i was looking at something today and we and we won't we won't go into cryptocurrencies, but for example um, you know, Ethereum today can process a million and a half transactions a day. Look, that's, that's I mean, that's impressive. Um, and and, and they, there's a lot of other advantages, you know, that, that people are seeing in that, net, that network, but it's nowhere close to the scale that we see in any example in terms of volumes. And, and, and then not just the volumes, but running that at five nines and, and, and being able to scale that and, and have that kind of reliability. You know, when you go and you tap your credit card in the UK, at a merchant, it just works, you know. It just works, and 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 it takes a long time to build that, to, to you know, to build that and have that experience and to build that kind of reliability into networks, and especially complex interconnected networks. So I think that's probably the third one for me in terms of the things that need to be addressed that will help enable um, and and even the adoption of um, of a digital currency.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. Laying it out, I think that. Paints a very compelling picture. And I want to go back to Bill because he was talking about GDPR and, and the sort of the privacy infrastructure. It is different globally. Right? These 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 requirements are are, are very different, and the UK may differ again post Brexit. Now, how how do you overcome the the data infrastructure and privacy issues that that we've been talking about here?
1: Um, it's a good question, and actually, you know, this may be area I'd be interested to get Patrick to be honest too. Um. Because the thing that I worry about is not not knowing as much about this as some other people on the on the cast. Um, all the things that Tom mentioned, I'll be I'm worried about the data infrastructure side. You know, I, I look uh, things like Ethereum and and uh, for example, Fastly. You know, the, the cloud service provider um, that just went out um, a few weeks ago, and as a result, several uh, you know popular websites without for a few hours. Now that's just a cloud service provider and some websites, but I wonder, you know, and this this must be what the central banks are thinking about in terms of, you know, as I was looking to earlier, when you're talking about keeping your CBD safe, it's a lot more involved than just a Brinks truck. I mean, you need, you know, your data infrastructure, your resiliency, you know, if there's a major major outage uh, of a major service provider, um, you know, that in case, how people can access and spend their money. That sort of goes towards uh, a country's stability. Um, it's uh, it's it's worldwide perception. It's a much bigger risk for a country uh, from a data infrastructure perspective. There's an outage um, than it is for the New York Times website. Um, so I, I I I think that must be um, kind of the um, a major concern. And and I wonder um, how truly open sort of a CDDC system at the international level can be um, uh, uh, to those concerns. And, and so my thinking from a, from a, I guess, barrier perspective is it's going to have to be uh, the gatekeepers in this area, I think, are going to have to be the large uh, reserve currency, central banks, uh, uh, convening sort of at the international level, the SSB, um, sort of some of the, the existing infrastructure Tom was alluding to earlier i relying on that to sort of set robust eligibility requirement for data uh, infrastructure providers, system providers. Because I just, you know, again, not knowing much about this area as others, I worry about relying too much on, um, you know, sort of, so, you know, these sort of new market infrastructures. Uh, that, you know, when I when I look at the paper every day, it seems like there's always, you know, some hack or 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 some outage, and I wonder would central banks be willing to concede a lot of that. Um, uh, uh, control or, or depend on, on a lot of these sort of uh, new technologies. Patrick. Yeah,
3: well, uh, yeah, hey, PJ, let me, uh, th- th- these are really, really important points. And I think, I think uh, again, this comes down to the kinds of architectural decisions that you make, right? So it feels like this is all sort of one thing. Um, I, I, would, I would argue that it, it's, it's, it's not, right? And, and this, this really goes toward getting the architecture right. Um, and thinking about it. so, you know, for example, a very sim- simple, uh, you know, example here is, um, you know, there's this notion that, um, you know, because of all the, uh, you know, the concern around Bitcoin, which is a truly a bearer instrument, um, this this question about, you know, protecting wallets and and this sort of, uh, that's actually these things will, should not be bearer instruments in that sense, right? Because otherwise they're non-recoverable in the case of a hack, and 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 again, you're going to erode trust. Um, So, architecturally, you know, and how you go about that um, becomes, um, you know, the 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 first question. And and those things can be, um, you know, again, it's I think it can be dealt with in a fairly straightforward fashion. Then, if you get that right, um, when you go on to, um, you know, data privacy and that sort of thing, um, those pieces begin to fall into place. It's a little bit of a thornier issue, uh, but they begin to fall into place. Um, But I think the core point here is we're talking about you know, this is, is this critical infrastructure? Um, If you do this right, it's the internet, right? Um, If you do it right, that's what you're using, you're using the internet. Um, And, um, you know, certainly, you know, there are some things that you'll need to do to make that more resilient. Um, But, but I don't, I don't think that, you know, you'll need to, you know, extend a national, um, you know, infrastructure out into other countries, for example. Um, I think standards will address some of that, Um, but, but, you know, it's just getting getting the you know getting the architecture right. The interoperability is as Tom talks about frequently, which is absolutely right. The interoperability is key. I think there, we're, you know, Tom is talking about interoperability um, among you know sort of new systems, legacy systems, and multiple systems, and and we think about it in exactly the same way. Um, so so that part it, again, if you get that right, um, you can solve some of those issues in terms of well, how far can this move. Um, you know, while still, um, you know, retaining that sort of resiliency and, 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 and um, y- you know, uh, adherence to to data protection requirements. Um, so they're the most important questions, um, but they don't strike me as necessarily being, you know, one, insurmountable tasks, obviously, but two, I, I, I think we would, we think that there's uh, there's a very clear path toward you know more decentralization than just saying well you know this is you know uh central bank has kind of the you know the lockdown on this infrastructure i i don't i personally don't think that that's in obviously the way that we approach technology um you know we don't believe that that is necessarily the case
0: we've been arguing this centralized decentralized architecture for for, for decades i guess you know my my, my big question i guess is, is what's the benefit of decentralized and how does it out, out, outweigh the risks that you're, you're, you're facing if you, if you're not there, if you, you know, if, if you're in a centralized environment, you theoretically have more control, though so all the new regulation for banks about how they manage their infrastructure kind of indicate they're not under control right now. So it's a very, very interesting architectural strategy type question. And Tom, how do you, how do you think about that?
2: Well, I don't, I don't think, and don't interpret the, the uh briefings and discussion documents state anything close to banks are out of control um i, I think there, are uh i think there's known issues yeah, the bis for example in cross border payments uh a year ago now in july of 2020 um published improvements um that they thought were important for uh for cross-border payments and they and they put forward kind of 19 building blocks and 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 we agree um, with a lot of those and we've seen that and we've heard that from our, our customers so I, I, I think the I think the kind of the the improvement areas and areas that we could um, do better I think those are pretty well known um, and I, but I but I think you know when you look at these kind of industry type solutions uh, they're complicated to explore and to make decisions on and they're complicated to roll out even with the best intentions of the world I mean look at any kind of you know, upgrades that are happening today that are, that are, you know, the benefits are very clear. ISO 2022 migration, you know, takes a lot of time uh, for, for, for adoption and not because people don't want the benefits and not because they're resisting a good idea, it's just because there's a lot of things to do and these are complex programs of work to run. Um, so so I, I, think, I think there's, there, there are good, I think there are very well known um, improvements. Um, I think there's a willingness to get there. Uh, there's always a competition for things that you have to do that are mandated versus things you want to do that are more discretionary. You know that might drive uh, revenue or improve customer service. Um, but I, I, you know, this is this is this is what uh, people are paid to do: is to make those trade-offs and to find the right priorities. And, and then, in in some cases, in particular, market infrastructure and things that are systemically important, you also need to demonstrate that you understand all of the risk in taking those steps. And all of the mitigants and taking those steps and and, and be able to, you know, convey that with confidence to people who oversee you, whether that's on the board of your institution or, or or a regulatory body that oversees what you're doing.
0: Thanks for that, Tom. I guess you know, look, we're we're, we're at time and having to move it to wrap up, but there's so much more we could go on to. But Bill, I'd like to start with you in the in the final wrap-up question, which is just take take a minute. Given all you've heard here, what's the what's the prize for getting this? question right i mean obviously lots of barriers potential new risks we've heard lots of reasons why it might move slowly why it might push forward but without a sense of what why are we doing this uh, you know I, I don't get a clear read on on uh, how things are gonna go so what give us that sense of what's what's the prize
1: um well i think it kind of you know i think it's driven by uh uh you know the point patrick raised at the outset which is um, and Tom, which is what are we, what you know, what's the goals, what, what, are, the, what are the policymakers' goals here? Um, and it's good to hear some optimism, you know, during this, this cast about uh, people thinking we can kind of overcome, you know, some of, you know, for me as a regulatory lawyer seeing kind of insurmountable hurdles, it's good to hear that. But I think the prize is, you know, for those countries that aren't really, you know, well integrated into um, the global payments ecosystem, um, they have difficulty accessing reserve currencies. They have real significant challenges with financial inclusion, um, underbank rural populations. I think, uh, you know, if, if this is the internet, I think potentially those kind of countries, by sort of pursuing this, they can really dramatically increase um, uh, their financial inclusion, um, increase the ability of, of banking products and, and payments to uh, you know underserved communities. Um, and by the way that that's also relevant in the US and in developed markets as well, which is why you know our central banks are looking at this too. Um, so I think that's the prize. I think that um, you know, particularly for those reserve currencies, I think the costs um, sort of rise as well. so there's, there's, a, there's a higher cost benefit to sort of you know going full throttle on the CDs. Uh, DC, at least from a, a systems diagnostic or a totally open system, I think those countries are going to be much more cautious um, because they're going to be more um, uh, worried about some of the risks the dangers and they're going to have, want to have more control over the, the infrastructure. Whereas countries, you know, that don't have, you know, as, as significant concerns when it comes to monetary policy <clears throat> um, and reserve currency, uh, monetary stability, I think they're going to be more aggressive here. And I think the prize for them, uh, potentially uh, w- w- would be very beneficial uh, uh, for their economy. And gradually, that cost-benefit analysis, as Patrick was saying, people will get more comfortable. Uh, people will realize what this is. People will sort of uh, uh, develop the right architecture and think about architecture the right way. And you'll start to see uh, you know this become more viable even in more developed, um, I think, markets. Um, so that's kind of my thinking in terms of the prize and how I see it playing out. Thank you.
0: Fascinating. Patrick,
3: same, same question. Yeah. So, you know, it, it again, you know, it, it comes down to sort of what are, you know, what are the motives, right? And so um, uh, it, it's actually hard to say because, um, you know, you can take a cynical position. You could say, well, look, there's, um, there's a lot of consternation about the uh, the rise of crypto. Um, and, um, you know, while, you know, everyone will say, well, look, it's not a meeting of exchange yet. Um, I think the more intelligent people say, well, you know, give it time, right? You know, it's just, you know, things will, um, if there's a demand for it, you know, a pathway will be found. And so they want to sort of head off that eventuality and say, well, you know, you want digital money, we'll give you digital money, you know, you know, you know, it's, uh, it's your government's digital money, right? So uh, that, that's one way to look at it. Um, although it's an ironic way to look at it, because I, I might argue that the reason that, you know, people or one of the big reasons that people gravitate toward crypto is sort of eroding trust in institutions. And so, um, you know, replacing uh, crypto with institutional money seems to maybe not answer that that question. But if we go beyond that, we could say, well, look, um, there's certainly something to be said, and I mentioned China before, there's something, certainly something to be said for, you know, the ease in which you can facilitate transactions and interbank transactions and things like that. And, and how do you, um, you know, uh, how does that play into, you know, uh, really, say, the dollar is a world's reserve currency? And, and what things can you do? And, and certainly it's not hard, I, I suppose, um, on some level, well, at least philosophically, it's not hard to convince some folks that, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to get out, out from under the thumb of Uncle Sam? Um, but partly by the automation of, of you know, compliance, um, you, could, you could make it easier um, you know, for these institutions to comply with these things. Um, without having to change the uh, the regulations and, and and maybe you know that's a pathway forward. It's part of what we think about when we think about the automation of compliance. So, again, it's hard to say what the what the motive is in every single you know capital that's contemplating you know CBDC. And it, it, I think it's clear that it's different in different places. Um, but um, that's a foundational point. I, I don't know the answer to that question in every in every. I don't even know the answer to that question in the United States right now, to be honest with you. So, so um, you know, it's kind of open.
0: Fantastic. Tom,
2: close, closing word. Well, I, I, I think I have an answer. Um, to, to me, the the prize, and, and Patrick uh, touched on this, but to be more specific, the prize is improved transactions. That, that's really what it comes down to, right? So I think it's a perfectly natural progression as the economy goes digital and payments go digital, that the currencies that are used in those payments go digital as well. So I think this is a there's lots of challenges and lots of reasons, you know, risk to be addressed and a lot of things to to get worked out. But this creates a great opportunity for us. You know, whether you're looking at consumer use cases or you're looking at cross-border payments, it's a great opportunity for the industry and maybe in a, you know for some of us, you know, a once in a career type of opportunity. So it's about improved transactions. You know, when you when you speak to a corporate treasurer or you speak to your friend who might use a a payment to payment app to reimburse you for. For, for dinner, the people don't care about the payment. They care about what they get from the payment. And if we do this right, and we we're able to actually do, build inclusive networks, then our ability tra- to transact will allow people to get what they really want, which is on the other side of that payment. So I think to improve transactions is, you know, to me is, is by far the, 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 the prize in, in all of this.
0: Well, I don't think anything's summed up on any redcast more the JWG ethos, which is we got to get compliance to be better, faster, cheaper with lower risk. And, and I think that this being a greenfield area where we can finally get out and explore, it has been fantastic to have this conversation with you guys today. I, I don't know when or how fast this is moving, but I certainly hope we're back here talking about this on a, on a more regular basis. So leave it to me thank you all uh, for your participation. It's been a, a great panel. Yeah, I, I know a lot. Pat, Patrick and Tom have gotten up very early for this. I'm sorry, Bill's gotten up at the same time as well, so thank you for that. And uh, thank you for subscribing to all our listeners. We've uh, been enjoying all your feedback. Check the website. We'll have lots of links to documents so you can learn more about this exciting topic. And take care, we'll see you soon.
3: You can download the podcast via Spotify, Apple, and Google. But also I'd encourage people to come to the JWG website, which as hopefully you will know, is jwg-it.eu. Go to the
0: Intelligence Hub and create your bespoke library. This
3: is Redcast.
0: Where we shine a light on banking digitization.